So I have a question for you. What institution that exists on earth today will only get better in the future? I don't think it would be education. I don't think it would be entertainment. In other words, what are we going to take into the millennium with us that we could start doing now and practicing now, and then we're going to have to teach in the millennium? What is this institution that I'm talking about going to be in a, in a, in a millennial reign with Jesus Christ? I'll say it'll be near perfect. Folks that are doing this will still have carnal nature. Will it be government? No. We heard the other day that God is just going to dig that all up and throw it out and build on a new foundation. It's not going to be the economy. We heard a little bit about that yesterday. Turn to Revelation 19 with me. The institution I'm talking about is marriage. Marriage will still be around in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's interesting the parallels between the Feast of Tabernacles and the coming marriage of Jesus Christ to His Spirit-born church. Instructional in our marriages today. Revelation chapter 19. When the marriage of the Lamb takes place, following the return of Jesus Christ, this will be an occasion for great rejoicing. We come here with a heart full of joy. Just just the anticipation of coming to the Feast of Tabernacles, we're filled with joy. And then as we come here, we're even, even more because our joy is contagious. Our enthusiasm for being here is contagious. It says in verse 6, of Revelation 19, and as I heard, and and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thunderings, Hallelujah, for the Lord omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give Him glory, for our marriage to the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And isn't that what we're doing with each other? The messages throughout the year that we hear, that we hear, we want to make ourselves ready. It's interesting how Jewish weddings have three major components, all of which the symbolism is covered in the three festival seasons. Let me read a little bit out of one of our booklets. And as I'm reading this, I'd love for you to pay attention to it. But also, think what booklet is this out of? And then we'll take a poll, toll and poll and we'll see how many people got it right. No, I'll just, I'll tell you the answer in just a second. In this booklet it says, the first part, the, fa- the father of the bridegroom pays a price. And it refers back to Genesis 24. Abraham offers gifts for arranging a wife for Isaac. Parallels the Passover season, the bride price that was offered for his lot, for, uh, the bride price that was offered, the God offered was the life of his son. So that was the first part of the marriage process. Then the second part is the espousal, the signing of a marriage covenant. This was that this was the stage where Joseph and Mary were at when she found herself supernaturally conceived. The second stage of the marriage ceremony parallels with Pentecost. The time of the covenants. Jeremiah 2.2 is referred where the time of Israel in the wilderness was likened to a time of espousal. And then the third part, the celebration of the marriage feast 
normally one week in duration, characterized by festivity and celebration. This phase usually began with a procession that concludes with seven days of feasting with family and friends. This final stage of the wedding ceremony parallels what we're keeping now, the Feast of Tabernacles. Seven days of feasting that represent the millennial reign of the Messiah, when he will make a feast of choice pieces to the whole world. I just think that's fascinating. Wouldn't you like to read that for yourself in the booklet that you're thinking of? What booklet are you thinking of? Is it this one, God's Plan for a Happy Marriage? It would make sense to me that it's here, but it's not. It's not. It's in the booklet, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled by John O'Gwen. So if you haven't read that in a while, go back. It's worth the study. I just paraphrased, really. I didn't, I didn't cut and paste the whole thing. But we're here keeping the days that God set aside as a perpetual type of marriage covenant that we'll make with Him that we just read about in Revelation 19. Those who compose the bride must learn the law of life. Moses and Nehemiah read the law every day during the feast. How will marriage in the kingdom look? During the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we're certainly going to take that over with us. The title of my sermon today is Marriage in the Kingdom. I do reference Dr. Meredith's books, God's Plan for a Happy Marriage. Dr. Meredith writes in a book that building a happy marriage should include the idea of building a family kingdom. Our physical marriage today is a direct type of spiritual marriage to take place between a glorified, all-powerful Christ and His true church when the church of God is born of God to become the very family of God. Jesus in multiple places, not only in the Gospels, but also in Revelation and Ephesians, talks about when He, when he comes, when He returns, symbolically, He'll marry the church. A time, at that time, it will be a family relationship, all on a very positive level. My SPS is fulfilling our responsibilities as husband and wives now. Prepare us for our responsibilities in the coming kingdom. It's a wonderful way to look at our marriage to our spouse. Dr. Meredith said in his booklets, God's plan for a happy marriage. He said, marriage and family life are in a God-plane relationship. God made marriage. That's why it can carry over to us, with us in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. God made marriage. Certainly not the way it is as people look at it today. I'm talking about the traditional marriage. The marriage that a lot of the progressives want to do away with. Dissolve. So I'm talking about the marriage that's most familiar to you and I. Marriage was given to us to prepare for eternal life in a divine family of God. I read that and I ask myself, and I'm not looking at my wife, I ask myself, so how am I doing? Because if we think of that, that should change our perspective on things. We either should have greater appreciation for what we have or appreciate the lessons that God is teaching us through the institution of marriage. Marriage is given to us to prepare for eternal life in a divine family of God. My wife and I were married before we were part of the church. 
in fact, we were married a, a pretty good time before we became part of the church. And what a blessing it is to have my wife in the audience as a begotten child of God. And it sounds easy, I think, sometimes when we talk about marriage to youth, it sounds easy. We pray for a good spouse. We get married. Everything fits together like a hand in glove. And all we have to do is prepare ourselves to be the best spouse ever and we'll have no problems. Who's with me? No difficulties at all. Turn over to Song of Solomon. It's between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. It's interesting, marriage, I enjoy doing uh, wedding ceremonies. I don't do enough of them. I'm not giving a homework assignment to the singles. But there's so much excitement and so much anticipation. And especially when we're dating, I think everybody could remember their dating years with their spouse. Only for me, only after I got married, I found out, you know, we're we're a lot different than I thought. What happened to the hand in the glove thing? My, My glove doesn't fit like it used to, or at least the way I thought it was fitting. It says in Psalms, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 15, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. What this is talking about is daily conflicts or conflicts between a husband and wife. The little foxes that ruin the vineyards, spoil the vineyards. Life's difficulties get in our way. And we look at them differently. Why does a husband and a wife look at life differently? That's right, because we're different people. James Dobson, in his book, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women, he writes about the biological differences. Men and women differ in every cell of their body because of chromosome combination that makes us male and female. And that's no longer being promoted now. We're all the same. We're all the same. It's interesting, Lenin, when he tried to push communism, he wanted to make it a divorce on demand and make men and women be equal. And if you remember the stereotype posters of Russian women, they looked more manly than most of the men in the room. Certainly me. I had brawny arms, hairy. I don't have any of that stuff. We differ in skeletal structure. It's always interesting to me when they think of, when they t- talk to us about that we're all the same. I think, well, I don't go through. I might go through menopause, but I don't go through menopause. I've never lactated, and I haven't got pregnant. How how do you figure that we're the same? Husband and wife, we know each other. We love one another, and we want to do what's best for our spouse. Let's look at Ephesians five. Ephesians chapter 5. By learning to understand our spouse, 
By learning that our spouse is a different person, we begin to become an expert in meeting their needs. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 33, Ephesians 5 and verse 33 says, Nevertheless, let each one of you, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, your wife, my wife, needs our love. And we define love as outgoing concern. Outgoing love and concern. And Mr. Weston alluded to this a little bit on his opening night video. But if we look at the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, we won't go there today, but that would be a a quick Bible study for you. Look at the different aspects of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and check off all of those that you think are just an emotion and circle those that you think are fall under the category of choice. Let me know what you come up with. These verses in in verse 33, this verse in 133, there's no conditions attached. Each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. No conditions attached. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. No conditions attached. And I hope you're able to see that when we're spirit beings, that's exactly what we have to do in the kingdom, isn't it? God loves everybody. God loves, God loves the world. He's just not calling everybody at this time. We're privileged to be called right now. But everybody is made in His image. Doesn't He, does He not love everybody? He wants, He wants all to come to repentance and none to perish. So isn't this a wonderful exercise for us to do in the kingdom? Because we know we can't get into the kingdom unless we're forgiving. And we might touch on that a little bit later. Many wives yearn to feel more love from her husband just as a husband needs the respect from his wife. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 33. It says, But he who is married cares about the things of of the world, how he may please his wife. Verse 34, There's a difference between a man and a virgin, a woman, a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. She is, she may be both holy, that she may be both holy in the body and the spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. A good-willed husband is concerned about how he pleases his wife, and a good-willed wife is concerned about how she may please her husband. A wife wants to be that special person to her husband. She wants to be cherished and she longs to feel important before him. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. When Leah gave birth to Reuben, she thought, now Jacob will love me. She longed to have his love. It's a heartfelt example of a wife's desire for the love of her husband. 
I don't know the exact verse, but it's in one of the epistles of John. I believe it's the first one. If we can't love the person that's standing before us, how can we pretend to love the God that we don't see? True heartfelt example of how a wife loves her husband is again by, by Leah. Now I just have to stop here for just a second because I don't want anybody getting hurt. When you get into a, the, uh, the cart, the cart at the roller coaster, they tell you to keep your hands and feet inside. So as, as I'm talking this morning, this is a not allowed. You listening? This is not meant for a, a, an offensive weapon against your spouse. You f- see where you fit in, and you correct you. And you have patience and ask God for patience. That God, that God creates in your spouse His holy righteous character. I didn't, I don't see it written that me as the husband has to create the holy righteous character in my wife. And for that, I say, thank God. I'm having enough difficulties with me, let alone taking on somebody else. That's Philippians 2.12, I believe it is. Work out your own salvation. Have your spouse work out your own salvation. That's not scriptural. So what we have to do is we have to be humble. We have to let our spouse process the information that they hear, allow them time to act on it, and get used to the idea that a wife needs her husband's love and a husband needs his wife's respect. And it's a choice. It is a choice. So if I choose not to love my wife, that's on me. It has nothing to do with her behavior. But she's not lovable today. Today she's lovable, actually. But you understand that's that's probably the biggest key is to get out of this. It's a choice. It's a choice on how we behave against about even with one another in this room. We make a choice, and we decide to live by that choice. Wives don't need to earn their love. Husbands don't need to earn the respect. And that's totally against carnal nature, isn't it? That just doesn't make any sense. Some of you just put down your pen and closed your books. I'm not listening no more. But that's all scriptural. It's important that wives realize that their husbands are not impervious to being hurt. Men might be big physically, yet emotionally we're still vulnerable. Queen Vashti refused the king's command. And Menachon was a, sent out a royal decree to go out to prevent excessive contempt among the wives in that area. Men might men must not lose sight of the heart their husbands have for them. Ladies, it helps to remember that men are commanded to love because it doesn't come easy. Women are commanded to respect because it doesn't come easy. We want to turn to all these scriptures, but Matthew 19, 19 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a commandment. Who's our neighbor? Our neighbor is the one that we cross paths with. If you ever spend time in the kitchen with your spouse, you know that you cross paths a lot. 
No matter how big your kitchen is, you get in each other's way, don't you? Because there's only one refrigerator. It'd be good if they built a refrigerator that had doors on both sides, his and her door. So you can both go to the refrigerator and you both could use it. My kitchen only has one sink. My refrigerator has a water dispenser. If we both want water, we're bumping into each other again. Philippians 2.3 says, not, not through selfish ambition, but esteem one another is better than yourself. Put the other person first. And I see that happening here. When two people come to a doorway, there's every, both step back. Let the other person go. And then eventually somebody makes the move and actually goes through the door. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not seek its own. If I'm constantly seeking my own way of doing things, I'm not being very loving. 1 Peter 3.11 says, Seek peace and pursue it. Wonderful verses to meditate on. Something that I think that we try to do is we try to energize each other, don't we? We find out what our spouse needs and we want to do it because it energizes them. And not to sound uh, selfish, but when we do something good for somebody else, doesn't that refresh us? Doesn't that help us? But it's interesting too to me is that we can get so caught up on ourselves that we don't want to please the next person and we're wondering why we're not happy. Because we're not acting right. We're not making the right choices. Ask your wife what you can do to energize her and your relationship with each other. Men, and I'm in this group, are often so wrapped up in their own what they, what they need to get done that day that they don't pay attention to what their spouse might need. My wife was bragging on me the other day. She said, There's, I don't, we don't have a to-do list at home. One of my first tasks is, what do you need done today, honey? And then I found this out too, So just so you don't think I have this thing figured out. I know how to aggravate her too. <laughs> if I ask her more than twice, the hair on the back of her neck starts to stand up. You already asked me that. Just do what you want to do. Sorry. And you know, it's interesting that you know that what you're doing and you do it anyway. You guys don't have that problem. I do. I just turn to first Peter three. Contentions among spouses aren't something because we're doing something wrong necessarily, but it might be that we're not doing something right. We're not doing the right thing. We're not doing enough of the right. First Peter three. I thought I took my watch off, but I was wrong. So I just charged a second in my pockets, and here it is on my wrist. Whew, magic. First Peter 3 and verse 7, it says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Being heirs together. Are we not heirs? If my, if my spouse is baptized, are we not heirs together? to be part of the kingdom of God? Being heirs together, grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you have a good prayer life, gentlemen? If so, you're probably treating your wife with understanding. If not, 
Here's a key verse for you. And again, this is based on a decision. It's not based on a feeling. I don't know how many people wake up with an alarm. I set my alarm, but I'm always up before the alarm goes off. I'm not bragging. I wish it was. I wish the alarm would wake me up. I didn't. I don't want to wake up before my alarm. But when our alarm goes off in the morning, it's a choice to get out of bed, isn't it? To get the let's get the day going. It's a choice to show up early for work, leave late. It's a choice. And then once we start acting on that choice, then we feel like it. Then we can, it builds momentum for us. Now we can really plow ahead. And at the end of the day, when we come home, we're happy with the day behind us because we know it's been productive. It's a sign of a, responsibility, a responsible person, a spiritual mature person that is, can consistently make right choices. Not always, but that's the character that we're building. Showing loving behavior when we don't feel loving, is a sign of spiritual maturity. You could just jot this down. We're not going there. I want to stay in 1 Peter 3 for another verse or so. It says in Luke 6.32, But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Do you ever apply that to your marriage? My wife isn't loving me. Does that give me permission not to love her? Not that she ever does that. I'm just using it as an example. Let's look at verse 12. For the eyes of verse 1 Peter 3 and verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's our job. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Our job is to be righteous. Our job is to do everything that's right before God's eyes. Regardless of the response that we get. And I th- we think of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ do everything right when he was on earth? Regardless of the response he got from the people around him? And the answer is absolutely yes. Of course it's true. He created us in his physical image, and we struggle in this life to be part of his spiritual image, to have his character develop in us, to be kindly and affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving honor, giving preference to one another. Romans 10.12 that was. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16. First Corinthians 16. If as a husband you're offended by how your wife actually speaks toward you, how should you act? Christ suffered, leaving us example. He, he was reviled and he reviled not. He didn't revile in return. Instead, we're told in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, watch and stand in faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Do you think you really meant all that we do be done in love? Or just did he... Do, I didn't look it up. Is the is the translation really well? Most of the stuff that you do, you do it in love. And of course, we know that we understand that love is uh, the riverbed of love flows down the uh, Ten Commandments. Sorry about that. Let's go back to First Peter. First Peter three eight. 
I said sorry because I should have had you hold your place. 1 Peter 3.8, it says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Does that apply to marriages? It absolutely does. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And I think everybody in this room feels blessed to even be here today. To be able to meet in a room of this size with a population of people that's this big. Why wouldn't we do the same thing at home? Have compassion on another, be tender-hearted, be courteous. That takes a humble spirit. You can't do that if, you're, if you're, your human nature gauge is ticking closer to 100%. It's always wise for a husband to have a humble spirit. We hear about the husbands are the leader of the, of the household and, and the wives are to submit. But it doesn't tell us to do it by force. Forgiveness is easier when we remember a spouse meant no evil. Oh, yeah, mine did. If you would have known my spouse, oh, yeah, they did. Uh huh. Mm hmm. And they're baptized members with you? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. They're not converted. Maybe, but maybe it's you. No, it's not me. It's not me. These principles are applied like a pilot flying his airplane in a storm where he doesn't know where up is or where down is. He has to rely on instruments. Our instrument is the Word of God. We do what God says to do regardless of how we feel or regardless what it looks like outside or inside. We apply God's Word. Keep your place in First Peter. Use your ribbon. We'll be back. I just want to read that verse again in Ephesians 5. The principles that I'm giving you today are likely to go against the grain of our human nature. And that's a good thing. If it's running parallel to or running right alongside with our human nature, you don't want to listen. That's why we need God's Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, each let each one of you in particular be so, so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects the husband. Women don't need much coaching at loving. I'm reminded of that when there's a baby in the room. The women want to love on the baby. Not so much men. Now, there's some men that gravitate, but generally speaking. Women don't need coaching on loving, but they do need coaching on respecting their husbands. It doesn't come easy, especially with entertainment as it is today. I don't watch much entertainment on TV anymore, but I remember seeing it. How the husband was the dunce. And then they even expanded that, how the mom and dad are dunces, but that's not part of today's message. 
But it goes against the grain of society. And that's a good thing. We want to go against the grain of today's society. Wives, your husbands need respect. Turn back to 1 Peter 3. Your husband needs and wants respect. It builds your home. Neglect it, it tears it down. 1 Peter 3 in verse 1 says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by conduct of their wives. I don't want to just pick on the wife with these, with these verses, but it's done by conduct, not by words. Verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So your fear of God. Chaste means exciting reverence. Feelings of deep respect and devotion. Your chaste conduct. When you respect your husband, you walk by faith. When you do, you just may have a brand new husband come home. One that will be kind and affectionate and loving to you. Stepping out on faith is admitting that we trust God at His Word about respecting our husbands regardless of their response. That's the hard part. For a husband to be loving and a wife to be respectful regardless of the response, that's the hard part. That's the part, if we don't get the response that we want, that's, the, that's, when, our, that's when our carnal nature kicks in. Finding out about your husband, finding things out about your husband that you respect and focusing on that goes a long way. I would caution you this. If you ever say to your husband, I respect you, you better have an answer to the second question. That is, what do you respect about me? Well, I don't know. Franz gave a sermon. I thought it would be a good thing to... I don't know. Who, who knew you'd ask a question like that? Go to First Timothy 3. Just like a man needs to tell his wife that he loves her, a woman should find ways to show respect for her, for her husband. 1 Timothy 3. And these are qualifications for overseers or deacons and elders. And it says in verse 4, one who rules his own house while having his children be in submission with all reverence. Verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Men want to be seen as the ones that manage the household well. doesn't mean they do everything. My wife pays the bills. I don't mind that at all. doesn't subtract from my manhood one iota. I'm glad she... She likes paying the bills. Why would I want to take the joy away from from her doing that? (laughs) But men have an inborn desire to go out, to conquer, to build, to accomplish. And that's where respect comes in. I respect how hard you worked on it. Boy, you, you, you really went all out. 
and you faced multiple defeats along the way and you didn't give up. That's admirable. That's why I married you. As a wife, when you start to understand how important your husband's work is to him, it's a giant step toward communicating respect and honor. How do men spell love? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Back in the late 1960s, Mrs. Aretha Franklin sung that song, and I think we all could sing Ready? Some of you are nodding your heads. You're kind of scaring me. She released a hit record entitled R-E-S-P-E-C-T and a clear message that all women were asking for is a little respect when they got home. Respect is what a woman needed and they had had to have it. And now in the genre of Paul Harvey, what's the rest of the story? R-E-S-P-E-C-T became a theme song for many women, but many women don't realize that it was written by a man named Otis Redding two years before Miss Franklin made it a hit. Otis released the single back in August 15, 1965 as a message to his wife and the primary meaning was Otis Redding's song as a cry for a man's deepest, from a man's deepest soul that says respect is what he needs and he's got to have it. That's what we read in, in, in Ephesians 5.33, is it not? Why does God tell women to respect their husbands? That's what they need. God doesn't just write those things in vain that he had to fill a quota for the, for the uh, publisher of the Bible. He wrote that because that's what's needed. Don't misunderstand me. Men need love and respect. Women need love and respect as well. A man wants to know that his wife loves him. Men do what they do for the admiration of one woman from his wife. When you were dating, you were his cheerleader. You motivated him. You touched his heart. He married you thinking that the cheers would last forever. And then the little foxes got into the vineyard and spoiled the grapes. We kind of got off track somewhere down the line. God made a helpmate. A helper suitable to man. The Hebrew word for helper or helpmeet literally means helping, answering to him, or one who answers. First Corinthians 11. Let's go there. First Corinthians 11. Paul takes this whole concept a little bit further. He says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 9, nor was man, man was not created, let's read verse 8, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. Nor was man created uh, for woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'll, I'll stop there. But man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. And if you're a woman's liber, you're getting riled right now. You, that, that makes you angry. That verse doesn't need to be in the Bible, you would say. I've never picked up one of the gender-neutral Bibles. I'd have no interest in seeing what it has. In my brain, there is no such thing. 
But I know that they're out there. I wonder what they did to that verse. And I'll just say that rhetorically. I don't want an answer for that. So men feel respected when, when they feel respected. They have a desire to work and to achieve. We express faith in him in his chosen field. He soars. It's hard sometimes when you get home from work at the, at the end of the day, especially if you have young children at home. The mom wants to tell the dad everything that happened that day. But men would like the opportunity to be able to tell everything that happened in their day too and actually have each of us pay attention as much as we want the other person to pay attention to our stories. Biblical principles. Marriage is, is, is a gymnasium in life in which our capacity to experience and express God's love is strengthened and developed. I think it all, it all clears the pathway for us to get to the kingdom. Husbands, just as God promises to draw close to us as we draw close to Him, our wives need closeness, and that's what cements our relationship. Women enjoy face-to-face communication. When you come home, be sure to give her a kiss, a hug. Tell her about your day, but let her tell you about hers without the interruption of ESPN, 6 o'clock news, what's in the mail, what's on television. If marriage is pictured as a continuum, involvement on one side, independence on the other, who would be on the side of involvement? Probably your wife. Who's on the side of independence? Probably the husband. But when we were married, we became one, didn't we? So that ought not be how it is for us. Obviously, we both need our space. Working out, that is part of becoming mature Christians. Closeness. I have a story I want to share. There's an older couple having dinner at a restaurant. The wife sees another couple about their age sitting at a booth nearby. She sees the husband in that booth nearby. Close to his wife, his arm around her, he's whispering things in her ear. She's smiling and blushing. He's rubbing her shoulder and touching her hair. Then the woman who's observing this says to her husband, look at that couple over there. Look at how close that man is to his wife, how he's talking to her. Look how sweet he is. Why don't you ever do that? The husband looks up from his Caesar salad, glances over at the next booth, turns to his wife and says, Honey, I don't even know that woman. (laughs) I read that because isn't that a guy thing? Isn't that what we do? The wife is going over this way. We're not in left field. We're not even in a parking lot. We're we're someplace further away. But our wives feel close to us when we hug them, be affectionate, and not have ulterior motives. Without going into any details, I think you understand what I'm talking about. Dr. Meredith writes, a man needs to treat his wife as a sweetheart. He needs to cultivate an atmosphere of love, romance, intimacy with her, kissing his wife when he returns home, holding her hand when they go for walks, embracing her often throughout the day with a free and lavish affection. 
Truly, true love certainly involves deep abiding respect. A man ought to be grateful and thankful that that the woman that is his wife decided to cleave to him above all others unto death. And then whatever they do for us at home. People ask me if I need any help. I always say I need all the help I can get. And my wife is meets the challenge well. Women went face-to-face communication, though, to look at each other in the eyes, not to be distracted to go someplace else. Do we go all out to help each other? Over the last six months or so, I guess some from April or April, I imagine, I think my wife could correct me, I've learned to be quite the grocery shopper. My in-laws are, my father-in-law is pretty much incapacitated at home. My mother-in-law doesn't really want to leave. So we go shopping for both families, my wife, for, for my wife and I, and then for them. So I push one cart, she pushes the other cart. I'm just starting to get the hang of it now. It's, it's October. Just starting to get the hang of this whole grocery shopping thing. It's a lot more complicated than you think because you don't buy this stuff over here. It's much more, it's much cheaper over there. And you don't get that stuff over there because they have better stuff over here. Ah, it's all a strategy. See, I'll just go to Super Walmart, one stop shopping, I'm done. Not to say that's right. Remember, keep your elbows inside the cart as we travel. Husbands need to learn to make their wives their priority. And wives must allow their husbands to lead. Let's look at Ephesians 5. The husband is said to be the head of the house. The husbands are said to be the head of the house, and the wife doesn't mind allowing him to be head of the house as long as he makes the decisions that are agreeable with her. It's a little bit like church government. Church government is a wonderful thing until it doesn't agree with where I stand. Then I can't believe they're making that decision. Ephesians 5 and verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, ha- the wife, as the Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let your wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. To submit in the Greek means to rank under or place under. Husbands do not have carte blanche label as as superiority. But God has given the husband the awesome responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Christ didn't give the church everything it wants to have. The church still has trials and difficulties. The living church of God, his, his church on earth, I think, is, has been tremendously blessed, and we've heard about that. The growth in the church has been marvelous. But not everything goes just according to plan. A man's duty to his wife is to protect and provide for her. At the same time, a wife is called to place herself under that protection. Wives will tell you that they're better decision makers. They might even be smarter than their husbands. They might even have better judgment. But Scripture says to submit yourself to your husband. 
I interviewed somebody that you would know if I said her name, part of living university class that we had to do. We had to interview somebody that's been married for X amount of years. And we had to come up with our own questions. And one of the last, the, the last question that I asked of this person was, what's the biggest surprise that you've learned in marriage? What is the biggest surprise that you've learned in obeying God in marriage? And she said, my husband early on made a decision that from all vantage points was the wrong decision. And she just swallowed her pride and any rebellion that was in her. And she said, that's what we'll do. Knowing full well it was going to fail. It was 2 plus 2 equals 17. That's how wrong it was. And she said, lo and behold, I submitted to him knowing he was wrong. And God blessed his decision more than he ever dreamt of. And if I didn't go along with him, if I didn't, if I didn't submit myself to him, I would have never enjoyed the blessings both of us had from that decision that he made. Doesn't mean that that always happens. God lets us make mistakes, doesn't he? We learn by our mistakes. If we didn't make any mistakes, think of how you would... I'll just pick me. If I didn't make mistakes, I wouldn't be here. I'd be so egotistical. I, I, nobody would be able to live with me. So thank God. God allows us to make mistakes so we could be humbled. But again, it's a decision that we have to make. Will I submit myself to my husband? Will I be the head of my wife and love her as Christ loved the church? No organization runs smoothly with two heads. God knew somebody needed to be in charge, and that's why he wrote these plain scriptures for us. Many women are expressive, responsive, and wanting to talk about things. It's comfortable for them to talk about their problems in discussions. So it's a good idea to talk about things in a household when a decision has to be made. Wives experience love in in her world by connecting openly with his heart. And a wife will often probe the husband to open up, even if he's reluctant. Go back to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. When we dated, there was a yearning to share dreams, fears, failures, plans for the future. So go to Isaiah chapter 1 and turn the page one more time and you'll be in Song of, Song of Solomon. Chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. The imagery here is the opening door symbolizes two people drawn closer to each other and sharing their hearts. They're attracted to each other, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. When a man shares, when a man shares during courtship, when we both share during courtship, it is exhilarating. It's part of all the fun of falling in love. It's part of all that excitement and emotion. We discover the girl of our dreams. But sometimes when contentment sets in, we no longer feel the need to share. Man's openness during courtship is what spells love for his future wife in big letters, and it energizes her. She wants to hear from him. 
Proverbs 31. We're just a chap- book or two away from Proverbs. Get past Ecclesiastes and we're in Proverbs 31, verse 11. And it says, the heart of her husband safely trusts her so that they will, so she, he will have no lack of gain. So a man wants to be able to share his thoughts with his wife, his feelings, and not have that held against him for some time in the future. It's a sharing. It's an open-ended conversation. That's how things get accomplished. So I think we should each ask ourselves this in our relationships, even with our spouses and with each other, with the people in our congregation. Am I an encourager or am I a discourager? Somebody shares with you their plans for the future. Oh, that'll never work. Boy, is that a dumb idea. What happens to that person ever sharing again with you? Slim to none. Am I listening or am I controlling the conversation? Verse 12, Proverbs 31, verse 12, She does him good and no evil all the days of her life. And again, there's no stipulation. Without this truth, men easily become embittered, feeling judged or ridiculed or wronged. We should seek to understand. Seek to understand what the other person is trying to say. And it's hard for men. Men usually only share because they need a solution and they need it right now. You got a tool, you got this, you got, they're not, they don't must chatter. I, I learned, I learned this, I'm still learning. But years ago, when I was I was uh, an administrator at a college, I had a number of people under me, and they'd come to me with their problems, and that wasn't a big deal. But one day, uh, a lady comes in. She's about my age, and we kind of knocked heads throughout our time together. We got along. We loved one another, respected one another, but we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, and I was happy I was the administrator and not her. She came into the office one day and she she uh, she said she sighed really a, a sigh of relief. She said, "Oh, Dr. Franz, thank you that you're here." And she shut the door behind her and she leaned her back she leaned her back against the door, almost collapsing on the door. And I said, "Uh oh," because now I'm alone, and she's blocking the only exit out. And so she started pouring out her heart to me, all kinds of different scenarios and whatnot. And I wasn't really paying attention because I was thinking, "You're blocking the door." But I must have nodded at all the right times because, and she even, she even fell, she even sat down. It was whatever emotional trauma that she was going through, she sat down on the floor. She didn't cry, thankfully. But she got it all out of her system. She stood up, straightened out her hair, grabbed the doorknob and said, thank you so much, Dr. Franz, you've been such a help. She opened up the door and left. I said, Franz, you're a genius. 
You didn't have to say anything and you fixed the girl's problem. I try to remember that because sometimes that's all our wives want. Just listen to me. Don't try to fix me. I just wanted somebody to talk to. You're trying to fix me again. My wife doesn't say that to me, but I'm still trying to learn. Just listen. Men naturally want to analyze. We want to get the fix to it. It's not a bad question to ask. Did you want a solution to this or you just need to talk? I just need to talk. Because I got solutions. It's not a good follow-up. We should learn to communicate, to exchange information, and it builds rapport. That's how women build rapport, isn't it? They, they're community. They come together. They share commonalities. They don't try to fix one another. That's why the men are all off on one side and the women are off on the other side. Men are over here. They're trying to fix each other. You got car problems. You got this problem. You got that problem. I know how to fix that. I've done that. You do this. You do that. Women are over here, and they're just, they're just forming a community. They're forming a relationship. And isn't that really how guys form relationships? Is you work together. Something breaks down, you work together to fix it, and you form a relationship. You form a bond when you fix things together. We are built differently. When our wife talks to us, she talks to us to clarify things. When our wife gets historical, I didn't say hysterical. When our wife gets historical, it means whatever that was, it's not fixed yet. Still kind of, still residing within her. And understanding a husband will make the best use of his time with his wife, with his kids. He'll redeem the, he'll redeem the time. He'll remember that she needs to be understood and it's a deep need that she has. Our desire to understand should override our desire to fix, gentlemen, unless she asks for something to be fixed. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. With every conflict in a marriage relationship, there's always a potential for a deepening, a deepening of our understanding for each other. To value and appreciate one another when it's reconciled. Ideally, our, our relationship should go stronger if there was a conflict, when there is a conflict. Less ideally is we grow further apart. And it says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 28, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. The virgin, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So he's saying, if you don't marry, that's okay. It's not sinful. But if you do marry, there might, there's going to be trouble in the flesh. So we shouldn't be taken back by this wonderful person that I married. All of a sudden, we're not in agreement. We truly want peace of mind, but we want peace of mind for each other. Go back a chapter to verse chapter 6. It says, now therefore, in verse 7, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians in verse 7, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you if you go to the law against one another. For do you not, would not rather accept wrong? Why do you rather let yourselves be cheated? 
Now, I understand this is talking about church government. I understand that we should be going to the church, we should be going to the ministry, but also this could apply to our, our marital lives. Do we always have to be right? And husband or wife, do you always have to be right? If the answer is yes, that's not building a relationship. Because somewhere along the line, somebody has to submit to somebody else. And according to the Bible I have on the lectern here with me, so the wife submits to the husband, even if she's right. It doesn't say if he's if he's wrong, don't submit to him. I'm not saying that if he's gone Looney Tunes and he's doing totally things totally unscripturally. I'm just talking about the everyday decisions that we make in our homes, maybe on a monthly basis, whatever it is. Wouldn't you rather let yourself be cheated? If we meet our spouse, if we try to meet our spouse's needs and we have goodwill toward one another, won't that come back to be our benefit? The key is to be willing to cut your spouse some slack. First Peter 5. I have this quote. I don't know where I got it from. It says, Don't doubt the light from God's work, God's word in your dark times. Marriage, I think, is a wonderful institution that builds our faith. We swallow hard and we move forward on God's Word and we say, this doesn't make sense to me. But that's our carnal nature. Our carnal nature doesn't want it to be sensible. We want to, be, we want to win. First Peter chapter 5, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting your care upon Him who cares for you. He'll exalt you in due time. Is that not what we picture here? Is we, are, we will be exalted beings one day. I shared that with you on the first day. That they'll worship their, each of their own God. And I shared with you that their God, who is their God? It's going to be spirit beings working under Jesus Christ. I shared with you that Dr. Jeffrey Fall gave a sermon last year and he said, you know, it's not just Jesus Christ we're going to be submitting. We're going to be submitting to those that he put in place over us. And if we're not able to submit to those who put place over us now, Mr. Weston said this, our current behavior, our current attitude toward things dictates on how it's going to be in the future. The whole marriage relationship rests on our belief that Christ is a reality and His Word is true. I often challenge the people that I serve If you were taken to court and you were accused of being a Christian, would you be found guilty? If they put a camera in your house and they looked in to see how things were going at home, would you be accused of being a true Christian? Would they find you innocent of the charge? 1 Peter 2. We practice love and respect in marriage because we're able to see Jesus Christ in that other person. Galatians 2, verse 20, right? Isn't that a prayer for all of us to pray? I mean, isn't that a verse for all of us to have? We're in 1 Peter, though. 1 Peter 2. In verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not with, not only to the good, but, and gentle, but also to the harsh. For it is commendable if you, because of conscience toward God, 
endures grief, suffering wrongfully. What credit is it if you are beaten for your own faults and you take it patiently? When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, it's commendable before God. doesn't mean you set yourself up to go get beat up. Hey, honey, I'm, I'm going to the bad part of town and hope to get beat up so I could take it patiently. Or let me, do, let me say some th- things to you that will really aggravate you so you can yell at me and I could take it patiently. No, you want to do what's right. My responsibility to my, my response to my spouse is my responsibility. That's globally. My response to anybody, regardless of who it is, is my responsibility. I wouldn't have yelled at you so much if you didn't do such and such. It's your responsibility how you respond to that person. My reaction to my spouse, when my reaction to my spouse is unloving, disrespectful, it reveals that I have issues. Not my spouse, me. And if you know me, you know I have issues. And we never play the blame game. If my wife and I are one, what do I get, what do I get out of blaming her for something that went wrong? Sitting here, I hope you all have the right answer. Nothing. Why would I ever do that? Exactly. There's still a lack of love or respect in my character. And if I let that continue, I become resentful of my wife. We have to learn to look to God, to trust Him in our situation, to have Him heal it. No matter how depressing or irritating my spouse might be, my response is my responsibility. And we could read the gospel message of Jesus Christ. How did he live his life? Perfectly. Did he ever hit rough times? Yeah, people were trying to trick him. They wanted to kill him. And eventually they did. What did he do to deserve that? The analogy is sand in your eye or sand in an oyster. Is it the sand's fault when it got in your eye, irritated your eye, caused an infection, and your eyeball fell out? I mean, you're, you, you had visual problems. The same grain of sand, if we put it into an oyster, that irritation causes it to build a pearl. So was it the sand... Or was it the medium that it met where it was put? I bought a great bag of uh, grass seed. Guy said, guaranteed it'll be up in seven days. Just water it. So I threw it on my driveway. (laughs) I watered it just like he said. Well, as I'm mad at that guy, I, I let him have it too. Didn't come up in seven days. In fact, I don't even see it anymore. Now, what medium did you put it in? Where did you put it so it would grow? Sand, the irritation just reveals the character, reveals our character on how we respond to the situation. If you know how to make your spouse feel good, doesn't it make sense to do that? Just, just for me, because you don't have this problem. And if you know what aggravates your spouse, 
Don't you think you should avoid that? No, but it's so much fun sometimes. Only for me. (laughs) Not for the other person. Love has to be learned, and it has to be learned again and again. Catherine Ann Porter, she's a novelist. She said, love has to be learned, it has to be learned again and again. It has no end. Hate needs no instruction, only waits to be provoked. It's lying just under the surface. 17th century author, Francis de Selyes, he says, have contempt for contempt. In other words, don't, don't have contempt for anybody. Turn to Galatians 6. Is it possible to love the love right out of another person? We become so familiar with somebody, we know all their faults, we know all their wrinkles in their personality, maybe on their bodies, their weird habits. We could become so familiar that we become contemptuous. In Christian marriage, we're called to focus our efforts on giving love and respect. We're commanded to honor someone even when we know their deepest flaws. If you and your spouse are in love with each other, if you're happy in marriage, you won't feel cheated. You should feel loved. Whatever it is, to trigger the feeling of being in love with each other is well worth the effort. But I know because I've given marriage sermons at the feast, I understand and I've given marriage sermons at my home congregations. Not everybody has a perfect marriage. And sometimes we just need another lesson on how things should be. But I also understand that this is just a little bit of an hour message. You might have taken notes, you might not have. You might review your notes, you might not. And that's all okay. Use them however it would benefit you best. But let's just pretend you took notes and you did all of this stuff. You tried your hardest. And things at home don't change. Galatians 6, starting in verse 6, tells us the solution to that. It says, let him who is taught the word share all good things to him who teaches it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he shall reap. For whoever sows of the flesh will reap of the flesh. And whoever sows of the spirit will reap of the spirit, reap everlasting life. And this is the punchline. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due seasons we shall, in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as you have opportunity, let us do good, especially to those of the household of faith. If your spouse is part of God's church, this reads directly to you. In due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. He who endures to the end shall be saved regardless of what's around us and the circumstances of the people in front of us. We have our responsibility. We're responsible in how we respond. And God says, don't weary of doing good. Keep on 
keeping on.